0: Hi, this is Jim Colton, and this is the Driven Golf Podcast. In this episode, Andrew first chats with Chris Mason, a Golf Digest Top 100 teacher and coach to some of the best juniors, college players, and professionals in the game. Chris talks about growing up in the UK as an elite junior and his transition to college golf in the States. From there, we discuss his evolution as a coach and the life of a coach to some of the world's best players. Chris also has some great advice for parents and coaches on navigating this junior golf journey. In Angle of Attack, Andrew and I kick off a new series designed to help juniors whittle down their scoring average over time. In this episode, we focus primarily on the mental and decision-making barriers that are often the difference between shooting 80 and breaking 80. I wanna take a minute to recognize our friends at Flagbag Golf Company. Flagbag makes custom golf bags and accessories using repurposed old golf flags. Each bag is a one of one. Go to flagbaggolfco.com for more information and mention Driven Golf to receive a free custom head cover with the purchase of one of their golf bags. With that, here's episode 12 with Chris Mason.
1: Well, Chris, thanks for joining, man. I've been looking forward to doing this.
2: This is great. Thanks for having me on.
1: I mean, I've been a huge fan of yours for years. Uh, I mean, I love following you on Instagram. Every swing you post is amazing. Makes me jealous of your (laughs) skills as a coach. Hopefully, I give up a little bit of those vibes too.
2: For <laughs> sure. Okay, good. I'm good. jealous of your son's swing.
1: Well, you know, everyone says that, but, you know, he's just, it's genetics. You know, I haven't had to do a whole lot. <laughs>
2: I don't believe that.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, you know, I do. I know you just got back from the UK on uh, holiday. And uh, so, you know, obviously, I know that you're a stud coach and... As a as a coach and knowing my origin story, I'm always intrigued of like how how did this all come about? And I imagine that started with you playing junior golf and and looking looking at your history. uh, You were a pretty good junior. I'd love to hear a little (laughs) bit about that and kind of how how that played out uh, over in Europe. Plus, you know, I just don't know a lot about like the European junior golf landscape. So I'd love a little bit of color about that.
2: Yeah, England is very similar to basically everywhere else in the world that America is not similar to in that like, there's not a ton of money through golf, so everything would run through the clubs, and um, you would run through basically a team structure. So you would get good enough to play for your country club or your club or wherever you belonged, which was never very expensive. I think it would cost me the equivalent of about $200 a year to play at my country club. Really? That was the ju- that was the junior rate. Play as much as you want for two hundred dollars or something. It was very inexpensive,
1: and you um, could join as just you. You didn't have to have a family yeah. membership.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. So um, you know, then you'd kind of meet other juniors there and just go and play. And then there would be a junior team, scratch team that would go and play against other clubs. If you did well, you would be put forward by your club captain to um, go to county coaching, and then you'd all all the best players in the county would meet. You'd form a county team, go to county coaching, and then the county teams would play against each other. And then if you were good enough, you'd go to regional coaching and hopefully get on the regional team. And then you'd play against the other regions that would eventually form the national team. So um, there was a lot of team aspect, um, and I'm pretty sure that's that's um, fluid through the rest of Europe. And then eventually you play as an individual through the summer in these big individual tournaments, and then they would pick the England team from that. So um, I was fortunate that I played really well in a couple of big national events when I was 15 my freshman year, got on the England schools team, and then the next year played well again at the national championship and got on the England team basically my sophomore year. Um, And then we would basically have three – we would have England coaching – and they would pick three teams. There was a home international teams, which was the top 11. There was the European team where they play in the European championships, which was the top six. And then they'd have a world amateur team that would be the top four players. So you're like always striving to get up these teams. And you were trying to play as well as you can, not only in the team matches, but also in, in the individual so that you could kind of move up through the national program. So it was all very well supported. There wasn't a lot of cost for my parents other than the individual events. So Um, It was just a lot more conducive, I would say, to, you know, a team atmosphere. You you always had a a better coach, the level that you went up. And it was obvious what sort of the steps and the stages were. Now, in America, I would say, like, here, we've got the San Diego Junior Golf Association. You then move on to, you know, sort of the Southern California PGA. Then you hope to move up sort of to the AJGA. That would be the graduating tours exactly but you're not really moving into different teams so um it's and these people that
1: you're graduating with are the same kids that you played with from age 11 12
2: yeah for the most part yeah. yeah so you know i was fortunate i got on the england team early um and at the time paul casey and luke donald were the number one and two players in the in the country for ncaa so all the American coaches were coming over to England to find the next Luke Donald. And all they found was the next Chris Mason. <laughs> so, <laughs> I um, so I was lucky. I got recruited. I got about 25 full ride scholarships. Did this, you really? And yeah. I got wow. recruited to some amazing colleges too, um, like Northwestern and Tennessee, Augusta, Duke, Stanford, to, you know, really great places. And, and as an Englishman with no internet back in 90, 1998, right, yes. Right? You're yeah. just looking well, at these the prospe- yeah.
3: Right? Yeah.
2: You're just looking at these prospectuses and being like, I I don't know. Like I thought you are gonna hop on a plane and hop over to go check no, them all out, right? You don't you have no idea what's going on. So I'd heard of Harvard and Yale and and that was about it. So it was a bit of a shot in the dark and I knew I wanted to go to a really academic school. Um, I had a really good education in England, so um long story short, it was between Northwestern and Purdue and Northwestern wanted me to take a year off before I went um, just because of the academic stuff. So I didn't want to take a year off and and ended up going to Purdue. So I loved it there. It worked out well. I I met my wife there, um, but I never, I didn't quite progress. Like I was one of the best juniors in the world, but then like never quite kept progressing through college. So um, Was
1: that because your support system wasn't there anymore, especially your coaches?
2: Um. I didn't really have like a specific coach in as a junior. Like I Mm. didn't, it's not like we do here where, you know, you've got your coach and you are transitioning up. Like I had a County coach that was really invested in me. Who was a very good coach, you know? So I would see him, you know, very rarely for individual lessons, but more through, through the team coaching. Um,
1: Which that's just basically group, group training
2: exactly yeah. yeah yeah it's just sort of you know we do some mental training stuff and have some competitions that's basically what we do so um you know i was very um you know fortunate but like i didn't really have that technical training that i probably needed to keep moving forward and then i didn't practice properly in college which you know was not my coach's fault it was more my fault so i just i didn't quite keep on the same trajectory that i had as a junior but um,
1: when you got to college you did have some success no
2: yeah, no, I, I, you know, I don't want to say I, I didn't, I was big 10 freshman of the year. In all yeah, I remember seeing and, that. I was like,
1: that sounds like you were playing pretty good, but maybe yeah. that was early on. And, you know, some yeah. of your, the rust didn't start to set in or the separation yeah. from junior golf.
2: Was... Yeah. My, that was my freshman year. I was all, all conference and big 10 freshman of the year. And then I thought I should have been an all American, my junior year. I had a, you know, 71 point something stroke average. So I, I was a nice player, but I never won in college. Um, I had a bunch of seconds and I, and I look back now, you know, on my professional career and what I did in college. And you just the fact of the matter is I just wasn't at that level that you needed to be at. Um, I wasn't there, doing the right.
1: There, were there kids on the team that you looked at as saying, man, they, I can tell that they're better than me and that they have a little bit more of a future, especially in pro golf, just based on, whether it's the sound they make or how far they hit it or their certain skills are a little bit better.
2: Not really. No, we had a, uh, my junior year, we had a really good team. We finished seventh in the nation. We won regionals. We won a bunch of tournaments. It was, we had a really good team. And one of the, one of the guys on the team was a first team, all American name was Lee Williamson. Um, Good buddy of mine. Great player. I ended up playing all the way to the corn ferry, but like I would play with Lee and everybody would say how talented I was. Oh, you've got so much athletic uh, ability. You're so, so talented. talented. Uh,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and I just like never like okay, but like what does that mean? How do I harness that? How do I move forward with that? And you know, I just ended up being like this great athlete who never like quite achieved what he should have. That's that's kind of how I felt. Now I look back now and I watch these pros that I coach, and I was never that good. I just okay, wasn't. So you, Yeah. Just didn't like know. I, I know in my heart, like I wasn't, I wasn't mentally that good. I don't think I was physically that good. I didn't do the right things in practice to get better at playing golf. I trained myself to be a coach and not a player. Like I, I know all those things now. Um, and I, I would have done a bunch of things differently in order to be a better professional golf, but golfer, but like, I love teaching now. Like it just, I know everything that I went through moved me into this direction. And I'm a much better coach than I ever would have been a player.
1: So how long did we try to pursue pro golf?
2: I moved to San Diego after college in 03 and I hurt my back. I think it was in 05.
1: Okay. So pretty short Um, lived.
2: Yeah. And then I I think I quit in 06. Um, You know, but I, you know, my problem was I had a great education. Not that I was, I was, particularly smart but like i i knew i was like i'm gonna give myself three years at this and if i haven't made any progress like that's it for me there was a timeline though i was smart enough to put a timeline on it but like you need to be dumb enough to not put a timeline
1: on it. i was gonna say what about the you know the tony females of the world that if they had a timeline right that we don't we don't know who they are
2: exactly like you, exactly in, right
1: and in general though which I mean, we, we can talk a little bit about this now. I want to touch on this later, too, is I feel like a lot of guys probably play longer than they need necessarily need to because they don't have that timeline, um, especially when they're not necessarily seeing. Like riding on the wall, that it's, it is going to happen. So it, I think it is smart in that case, like, OK, after three years, evaluate. And if I'm not, if it's not, doesn't it seem like it's going to happen. Like I think making that decision at that point is probably after three years is probably fairly wise.
2: The it, it's it's a double edged sword, isn't it? Like on one hand, if you feel like you're progressing and improving, why why would you ever stop? Like you don't know where that trajectory is going to take you. On the other hand, if you're not so incredible that you can breeze through Q school and breeze onto the PGA tour and get a win in the first three years, you're probably not going to have a very long career. So like, yeah, you might, right. right? Yeah, Yeah. You might love the game. Like, yeah, like this is your passion and your dream and this is what you've wanted to do. But my God, you are signing yourself up for a really difficult life. I like I've been around it for 15 years. Now the ones that are out there and stay out there for the most part are maniacs, right? They, yeah. they just are wired differently and they've been wired differently from the age of five. They look at the game differently. They're very self-centered for the most part. They have you know no consideration for anything or anybody around them. And, and that, I'm generalizing, obviously yeah, yeah. I'm generalizing. Yeah but like they are wired differently and they are so good at golf that they're gonna be out there for 10 15 years
1: because it's like man I just need just need that one good week and it can happen right I mean it just happened at q school yeah there's five guys that got their tour cards that yeah. I, th- I think one of them had some status yeah four of them are gonna be on the on the pga tour that never have now will they have a ton of success. I guess we had, that story hasn't been written, but it's because I think everyone's living in that for for the most part, not everybody, generally thinking that if I can have that the three good weeks in a row, yeah, I can be right there. And I and like you said, you do have a lot of people that are saying, "Man, you you have so much potential or so much talent," and that kind of like leaves you thinking that yeah, and they and they're right, you do have that, but there's a difference between talent and like conviction that you know it's going to happen like you were talking about
2: yeah and if you it's a fine the top if you pulled the top 75 players in the world right like like there's not that many professional golfers who are like yeah i know where i'm gonna play next year and i know i'm gonna make two million dollars and i i know i'm gonna have a five to ten year career like it so let's take the top 75 guys in the world all of them would have been absolute studs as a junior and a college player, like not just a decent college player, like I was, like first the team, best. second team, third team, all American, four, five, six, ten wins in a career, all of them will have.
1: So that, I guess that's the difference. You know, before we jump into just you and your coaching, I, I think that that makes me think. Then, you know, I coach, I coach some juniors, and I'm sure you do too. Where there's almost like. There's a protection of their like where they are because they're pretty good. But if you really start to understand what you know, it's it's that like being pretty good is not even close enough to being good enough. And so there should always until you reach that three years after college, like there should be like a mad pursuit to get better every single day. And and, and being a pretty good junior. Yeah, that's pretty, That may lead to college. But if your ultimate goal is to be a top player in the world. Then you have to hold things. I would think you have to kind of hold things very loosely. Would you agree with that?
2: Yes, I I would agree with that. Yeah, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to dash anybody's dreams here. Like, if you want to be a like one million percent, go for it. Yeah. Um. All, all I'm saying is, like, most of this stuff is written early. Yeah, I would say, and and our jobs as coaches is to guide, polish, sometimes just stay out of the way. And that, for the most part, is great coaching. And that leads to your point earlier, which is like, we get way too much credit yeah. for these players. Like, very rarely are you taking someone who is a complete beginner and getting them on tour. Yeah, <laughs> that's, just, that's not what we're doing, right? They, the players are already coming to us, already very, very good. And your goal is just to keep helping them and moving along that way.
1: But you have multiple um, examples of kids that you saw... Pretty early on, like Ricky Castillo, De- Devin Blang, yeah. that have yeah. turned out to be, I mean, world beaters. So if you if you rewind back to when your your first sessions with those guys, like you could see the writing on a wall right then.
2: Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, Devin, I've been teaching I think since thirteen. Okay. Yeah, he was already already a very very good player. Ended up being runner up at USM. Like I like I, I truly believe like he's gonna be on tour and win yeah um ricky is absolutely incredible his first lesson that he came actually was teaching his brother at the time and i was ricky was waiting patiently for his lesson he's just chipping on the chipping grain and what he was doing with a golf ball i just like stopped the lesson and was just watching it like he he was like behind the tree flopping one over the tree hooking one around it trying to bounce it off some branch and spin it off there and and pulling 90% of it off. And I'm just looking over. I'm like, whoa, I've never seen any kid do that before. That's totally different. And no one's told him to go over there and, and start messing around. Right? It's just Not, playing no around. One, like most kids would be like, oh, I'll get my string out and I'll hit some six-footers and, you know, all I'll, I'll just work on my little chip and run. And it's like he's just seeing stuff that I've never seen before
3: Incredible.
2: and and pulling it off at 12 years old right? Like, like my job with him was, was more technical based, right? Like kid could already play. He was an amazing player at seven or eight years old. He didn't have the technique. He didn't have the technique. So a lot of what I was doing is just sort of solidifying his swing, putting some decent function around it so that he can play and keep moving up the levels, you know, but like that kid's been incredible from seven.
1: So going back to your playing pro golf, you saw the writing on the wall. You knew that your 3 years was up, actually you got injured. So, how did that how did that year and a half or 2 years of of playing pro golf? How did that start to inform your how how you were going to coach? And did and I guess I should ask first. Like did you know that you were going to coach even like when you were in college?
2: Uh, I mean, no. I don't think any coach sets out to be a coach. I think they just <laughs> yeah.
3: Failed, I, I knew I
2: was going to be a coach
1: <laughs> my my 80 77 80 in college I th- I was like you know what I don't think I should play pro golf
2: <laughs> um I, I, I wasn't a first keeper yeah I mean i most of us have got the same story right like yeah. we played as a junior played in college tried to play in pro didn't like you know injury whatever um and then you just be like whoa what the hell am I gonna do for me like even in college like we got no phones, we got no videos. There's no no technical stuff that we could do.
1: No track man. And
2: right, and right. and players no on both teams, the men's and women's team, would come to me and say, "Can you take a look at my swing?"
3: And ah, I could okay. just,
2: I would just see the shape of the swing and see the ball flight, and somehow, you know, for the most part, I don't, I don't even know what my success rate was. Be like, "Hey, this is what I think you need to do," and a lot of times it would work. And then as I moved into the mini tour, we, we laugh and joke, but, um, I had an agent that, um, put me with a couple of guys and we would travel together. And, you know, I, I remember a bunch of mini tour players would come and ask me for advice on the range. Hey, I'm not, you know, I'm hitting a slice. Like, what would you recommend? And, and it would work. And I just, you know, again, I'm not, there's no video at all. I'm like seeing it with my eyes, seeing the way the ball's flying. And just being like, hey, I think you need to do this. And and for the most part, it would work. And, you know, I, I tell this story a lot on the pods, but like I planned my last ever event. I'm doing a practice round at Tiburon, which is the Greg, Greg Norman golf course, which is so tight. And by the ninth hole, I've lost eight golf balls. I'm out of golf balls. <laughs> Done. I lost them all. And I turn to my playing partner, I'm like, this is embarrassing. I'm gonna go back to the range and I'm gonna try and figure something out for the first round tomorrow. This is a tour championship. I go back to the range and I see Dave, and Dave's like, Hey, can you take a take a look at my swing? And I'm like, Would love to. I would love to take <laughs> a swing. Right? You
1: should have and said, No, I, I need you here. to look at my swing.
3: <laughs> right?
2: Like Joe's there, Brendan's there, Liam's there, everyone's like, Hey, can you take a look at my swing? Can you take a look at my chipping? I spent four hours on the range and didn't hit a ball. And just loved every second. And That's then awesome. I'm on my way to shooting 81 the next day. Oh, I thought you were going to say <laughs> that
1: you won the event because no. you stopped having to think about your swing. No. <laughs> I'm missing the cup for
2: sure. And <laughs> no. all, all I could think about was how how these guys are doing. Yeah. And I, I'm like, okay. Like I I, I I'm not asking you a question, but like I knew at that point, like I needed to start coaching. But I look back now at my professional career, and my mum and dad would. um uh they got me a video camera I thought was the best thing ever because I knew, of course I knew more than any other coach. So I was like, I'm just going to teach myself. And what I would do is I would go to the range and take the video camera out and be like, Oh, you know, I, you know, I feel like my right heel could be down more. Right. So I'd like spend the next hour trying to get my right heel down. And then I'd take another video. I'm like, I was going to you know, say I you think must think be I, taking video like every, every hour. They were more open at the top and it, you know, Then I get on the course, I'm trying to put a score together. I'm like, keep the right heel down, get it more open at the top. Like, wouldn't hit it any good. And I'm like, okay, well, what did I do yesterday? It was like, well, yesterday I tried to bend over more. And I just like start running through these technical solutions. And of course, none of them work because I was just trying to make my swing look perfect. Yeah. And I look back now and I'm like, I'm not going to coach like that. I will not coach like that. But I'm going to coach from basically the score backwards right? How do I get this player to shoot better immediately? Like and which, which low hanging fruit am I pulling down in order for them to immediately get better?
1: That is Jim and that... is number one saying low hanging fruit, always attack the low hanging fruit.
2: Absolutely. So like, that's, that's kind of where I built my, my coaching philosophy off was like, okay, what lever do I need to pull on in order for the, for the scores to come down immediately? Um, and then is that a mental aspect, a short game of putting, a full swing, is it a technical, is it on the course? Like, I, as a coach, wanted to have all these skills so that I could teach any player in the world and get them better immediately. That's what I wanted to do. Um, so
1: how did you go about, in the beginning, kind of deciphering the information, or how, how did you even collect information to to make those low-hanging fruit decisions? Was it mainly just from player feedback? or Again, I know this is a while ago, so there wasn't as yeah. kind of stats like there is now.
2: Yeah, I can't. I couldn't tell you. This is back. You know, I started my coaching career sort of oh six oh seven. Okay. Um, I'm not. I'm not really. Sure. <laughs> I'm aging myself. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, it's a long time ago.
1: Well, how um, has that developed into over the last few years?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, for the most part, the players that I'm working with, it's player feedback first. Okay. Yeah. Um. You know you can you can tell as a coach if a player doesn't know what's going on or not, right you can you can tell oh yeah yo, you know I think I need to work on this and it's like well the stats are telling me this this needs to be worked on instead right and then and then there's other players who know exactly what's going on don't even need to see the stats so um, you know you're just running a process of elimination but you know I, I I'm not giving you a good answer here. Is no there, no that however. is a good
1: answer I mean I think the player feedback, you know, it depends on the level of player you're with. I mean, you're obviously around some really, really good players that, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, have, you know, have teams. And so maybe some of them have statisticians on their Mm -hmm. team that can tell you. But as a coach, you know, a lot of times when I'm I'm in front of someone, I might be asking, trying to lead them to water. But I I still probably most of the time can just kind of tell like, hey, I can tell this is kind of the things that seem to be the problem. And they may not even be like, Having that problem right in front of me, but I can kind of tell, like you know what, I could see this is likely happening. Um, so yes. that, that I yeah. I would agree that it mainly is player feedback or just almost like coaching intuition.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm I'm looking at more sort of a um sort of a big picture view, but like if we're just talking about the golf swing, like you can break it down and be like, the player's slicing it too much, they're hooking it too much, or the contact's bad. Yeah, right. Like like those are the three issues for the most part. So it's like okay well well how do I make this person hook it less? It's like you know it's bath phase what it you're just trying to figure out what the what the solution is to the problem right but like now you've got them hitting a draw instead of a hook that's great but like can they change their numbers yeah. like, do they know how far that can they repeat the swing so it's going repeat, Um, going in, in the right window with the right spin rate so it goes the right distance right but then can they change the distance but then, can they change the flight and the spin rate? Can they then move it the other way? Like, like you just start leveling up with these things. Yeah. Right. And you know what's needed in order to win a major championship, and it's like, okay, well, if you're going to win an AJGA, you don't need all of those skills. You just need to, can you make good contact, have good bandwidth, no, you know, and change your numbers. Like, you can you can win a lot of AJGAs just with some simple one-dimensional. skills. Yeah, one-dimensional skills, right? So, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of what we're doing is just giving the skill, giving the kids the skills that they need to get where they need to go at the time. And then, to your point, you know, with the you know, with your student, it's like they then take it to the next level, right? And then the best students will say, "I never, I never forget." I had this first team all American from New Mexico, wonderful player, James Erkenbeck. He he came to me and he goes, I'm having a problem with this one shot. I'm in between wedge and nine eye and the pins in the back left, the green's sloping left to right, and the wind's coming in left to right, and I don't know how to like turn a draw back into it so I can get to this pin. And I'm like, Wow, like that's really specific. Specific, yeah. You know what I mean? I was like, Well, I don't know, maybe just aim at it and just let the wind drift <laughs> and, <if it> drift, <laughs> and you take your power and move on. And if, yeah. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? It's like, let's not get too crazy on this. But like, you, you're talking like different low hanging fruit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's not going to show up necessarily in some stat because it's so specific to a certain situation. Yeah, exactly. So you obviously you post a lot of really, really good swings. Mm hmm. So I always think, you know, I see someone like that. They're You're really good at making them hit it well, while also having like stylistic preference. Like, do you still think that you do have a lot of stylistic preference or just it kind of happens that for someone to hit it fairly good? They just happen to get in positions that a lot of times are cosmetically pleasing.
2: Yeah, I think. um you know, obviously Instagram's a highlight reel. So I'm, I'm picking the swings that I really like the look of and posting those. But I think if you, like, if someone were to go down my reels, they would see that everybody's got their own fingerprint. For sure, There'd, There'd be certain commonalities that Chris Mason likes. You know, I like body turn. I like a lot of width. I like, I like it to be short and wide, like, you know, I, I like a shallow and rotating body rotation. Like, like who doesn't, right? Yeah. But, like, you, if you really go down a lot of it, like, a lot of players have got a little bit of flip release. Some people are high arm players. I've got some that are flatter. I've got some that can't turn. But, like, the only thing that I'm really trying to do is get the club on line halfway down and halfway through. That's all I'm really trying to do. So, while they all might look slightly different, I want them for the most part to look very similar from, you know, chest tight okay. to chest tight through. Okay. And that's, that's all I'm really looking for in the golf swing. I, that's the only thing that I could kind of come up as a commonality. Um, you know, and I, I, I tell this story, but when Brendan Steele came to me 10 years ago or so, it's got the goofy grip and the goofy setup, and, you know, he's very flat and laid off and, you know i was just like man i got to i got to get my ducks in order here cuz cuz I, I need to make sure i'm giving him the right information and basically went, you know and was like okay he's got a strong grip like what about a weak grip player and what are the commonalities like what what does he have in common with a high arm player like Furyk and a low arm player like Kucha like what if i took tiger and put him next to a brennan like what are the, what commonalities do they have you know, and I just, you just start running those things. And I tell all these teachers that come and watch me teach, I'm like, don't just look at the good swings, look at the nutball swings and tell me why that works. Right. And then try and find a commonality with Adam Scott. And then you're going to be pretty darn close to the secret. Yeah. So like, that's, that's all I could come up with. That's what I felt like was the most important thing is, is just getting the club on plane with a face as square as possible. You know, and then, you know, that's that's very simplistic. There's obviously a lot more details that go into it. But
1: I was gonna ask you about Brendan. I have a kid I coach who has a pretty strong grip, and of course everybody always tells him You got if you're gonna play good golf, you're gonna to have to weaken the grip. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have that much extension in your lead wrist. No, and, yeah. and I always pull up Brendan Swing, like, No, no. You tell those people that they need to stop giving you advice. And yes. it was was Brandon like throughout his life did coaches try to change that were you like the first one he, that was like you know what we can work with this
2: it just is a matchup no, no no so he he had a couple of coaches and he's still you know um rick smith's on our team too okay. um, rick okay. like rick's amazing but brendan would tell the story of him getting pretty good he, he didn't start until he was 13 years old so they like there's a there's a nice thing for a lot of juniors listening to the podcast is You know, he didn't start until he was 13. He didn't really get any good until he was 16, 17. But his his dad took him around and said, hey, we're going to see some coaches. And Brennan said he saw about four coaches and all of them wanted to change his grip. And as soon as they said that, they left. And finally, they found a guy, uh, Jim's his name. I think he's passed away now um, in Murrieta. And Jim was the only one that didn't want to change his grip. So Brennan's like, I'm staying with this guy. So it was Brendan who didn't want to change his grip, but all these other coaches were trying to put him into that square box. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Brendan found the matchups that were required in order for him to play amazing. Now, um, I played some mini tour golf with him, you know, back in oh six, and he had a strong grip and a goofy looking swing, and he just all he could do is hit a sling hook or slightly smaller hook. Like yeah. that's all he could right. do, but he knew it was gonna hook. Like now you watch him play and he's in my opinion, one of the top 20 ball strikers in the world. He's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Can do whatever he wants with it. Um, but again, like, like he, he won on the corn he not being able to hit the ball straight. You know,
0: It's incredible. Like he, just
2: knew, <laughs> he just knew it was going to turn over and he knew how to reduce the amount of turn and he knew how far the ball went and he knew where it wasn't going to go. Right. So like. You don't need that many skills to get to certain levels, but if yeah. you want to win majors, you need a lot of skills.
1: Yeah, I know. As coaches, we just, especially when you do this all day, every day, <clears throat> and if you were, obviously, if you were coaching someone from the beginning, you may not necessarily put them in that type of grip. But mm-hmm. going back to good, you just need to give good players information. I'm sure when Chris, I mean, I'm sure when Brendan started getting advice on how to work with that matchup, Like he could take that and run with it to a degree in a way that maybe some people couldn't to where when we have good players in front of us, a lot of times we don't have to make nice major change. We have to be able to give them the information to help them work within the parameters that they probably feel most comfortable playing in.
2: Yeah. Yes. But you've worked with a lot of good players, Andrew. They only care about one thing. The ball must be better.
0: Yeah,
2: do you think Scotty Scheffler cares what his swing looks like? He just no. he only cares where the golf ball's going. I think Jim Furyk cares what his swing looks like. Phil Mickelson cares. Like these guys don't care. They just are playing the game, right? And as a coach, like they're gonna come to you and be like, "I need to hit. The... Okay, well, what do you? Okay, I'm hooking it too much. Okay, well, let me let me make sure you hook it less." Right. Like, yeah. That's what that's what we should be providing. And these players can be off to the races again.
1: Yeah. They but just like, want predictability. Like the, they want to get up there nervous as all get out. Probably sometimes yeah. and just go, I, I feel like I know where the ball's going to go. I always say so you've got to know you've got to see the future. You have to know what's going to happen before it happens.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I love that. That's, I'm going to steal that off you. You
1: can steal that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got it on the Driven Golf Podcast. <laughs>
3: well, there we go.
1: So was was Brendan your first big break in coaching? Like, where, where, when did you kind of know, like, man, I've I've kind of I've kind of made it because I started working with like X Player.
2: Uh, Brendan was my first opportunity on the PGA Tour. Yeah, so that was about 11, 10, 11 years ago now. Long man, a long time aging myself. So uh, my first, like, I would say my first break into the professionals was with I.K. Kim. Um, this is. Oh man, I was young. I was twenty, twenty-seven 27 or 28 when I got an opportunity with her. She was young, probably 20 or 21, you know, 60, 70 in the world, like motivated, young, hungry, wonderful player. You know, she, luckily she, I got an opportunity cause she was practicing at La Costa where I was. Someone said, Hey, Chris has been doing a great job with the juniors. Why don't you go and see what he says? The fix was really easy for me at the time even though i probably didn't know anything um <laughs> yeah. and uh, sometimes and those worked. match up well i know like yeah like sometimes like, hey, like, hey, like I, the things we say like yeah
1: it, it worked out that time you know thank yeah. goodness it was it, it, the like, one I, thing i knew I, worked for them
3: i know this answer me me
2: i <laughs> it yeah. so so, like, she came and she's massively over-rotating a, low, a lower body, the club's way across the line, it's dumping underneath, she's hitting blocks and hooks. And I'm like, yeah. I got That's this. That's easy. Like, okay.
1: Don't turn yeah. as much of field
2: so, rate like, off. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I, you know, told her what I thought. She started swinging and hitting it better. And she's like, can you come on tour with me next week? I was like, uh, yeah. What
1: does
2: that mean? Yeah. That's incredible. So, then I went out with her and, you know, one player turned into five players and they were really doing quite well. And. Um, you know, Brendan had heard that I was making a bit of a name for myself, so he came down and and started with me. So yeah, I was very fortunate, very fortunate. So and we we all need a lucky break, but it's like uh, you know the yeah. coaches are always like, how do I get into the tour scene? And I'm like, well, you need to be, you need to put your head down, work extremely hard, know as much as you can, do a good job, and when that lucky break comes, like, are you ready? Are you ready yeah. for it? You know, yeah,
1: I'm curious selfishly because I'm not, I'm not in that, I'm not quite in that world yet of just kind of what that evolution is like as a coach and, you know, kind of like how you balance that with family, but also just like the demand. I mean, you're talking about multiple tours. Like, have you evolved into like making that system like really, really clean? Like, was that a struggle in the beginning? And like, what is that like today for you?
2: Uh, You know, I I would say, Back then, I'm just starting my career. You know, I just, I, I remember I was saying this to someone the other day. Like, when I, the first couple of years, I was just like, I just, if I can make 300 bucks a day, like that was my goal. I just, I'm, I'm charging 75 bucks an hour. If I can make, if I could do four lessons consistently a day, I remember having that day, conversation.
1: Like,
2: yeah. Like, man, can I, can I pay my bills? I think I can pay my bills at 300 bucks a day. And like, I'm like, okay, how do I go about this? And then the rest of the time, I'm just going to like research and learn as much as I can and hang out with these players. And, you know, and it just just started evolving and players, you know, the nice thing about the, the, the tournament life is if someone starts getting better, like it's just a snowball, things start world coming fire. quickly. So um, yeah, I was lucky. Like if you'd have asked me at 27, I'd say I want to be the number one coach in the world and teach all the best players. Like that would have been a very specific goal. That goal has changed, I think, quite a lot the last four or five years. Like, my only goal really, you know, don't tell any of my players this, but for the (laughs) next six or seven years, I just, I want to be the best dad and husband I can be. Like, it's, it's, I, I see what's required to be the best coach in the world, and you're probably on tour 35 weeks a year. Yeah. And, and that just doesn't align with, me being a great dad and a great husband. So, you know, I, I still, it's not that I don't travel a lot. I do, I travel a lot, like, but I travel when I want to travel for the most part. Um, so I, I would think I, that I would be incredibly,
1: I, I, again, I'm sitting there as, you know, your 27 year old self. I'm not quite 27 mm-hmm. anymore. Thinking, you know, I think as a coach, it's always like, yes, I, I want to do that. I want to do that. Um, but I don't think unless you're doing it, I really, I I don't know. I don't know the detail. Um, you know, you see, you see every, all the coaches that are out on tour and, and the life, it's probably similar to like what guys think like pro golf is like, Oh, it's just a, Mm -hmm. it's a dream or this or that. But Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's, it's a very, very hard lifestyle and a lot of, a lot of stress just on, I mean, I know how stressed I get (laughs) just watching the leaderboard of like an AJGA or like you know, an event today, like, oh, he's 10 over. Maybe if he makes a birdie, he's in the top 10. So I, yeah. I can imagine that it would be easy to kind of lose your your way in that world. Um, so that's really, yeah. really cool that, like, you've put, like, you've seen it, you've done it, you realize you can still be an effective coach and your players can be perform at a world-class level and still make time for, like, your number one priority of, like, your family uh, and your kids.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I... Don't get me wrong. I'm still, I still travel a lot. Like I'm still, I'm probably on the road 20 weeks a year. It's still a lot, you know, and I'm up in New York and, you know, there's a couple of weeks on both ends where I, you know, my family's back here starting school and I'm up in New York. Like, so it would be hypocritical of me to say that I'm home all the time and I'm a great dad. I'm not. Um, but I'm just, you know, the priorities and the goals have shifted slightly for me. Um,
1: or oh, you're more aware. And I, you're aware of it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I, and and I'm, I'm somewhat okay with it. Like I, I don't want to get out of that tour world. Like I love it. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like it's still a dream and I absolutely love it. It just, you know, but before it would have been very much, someone's on the phone. I need you at this event. No problem. I'm there for sure. No problem. Hey, I need you to come to Florida and you know, no problem. I'm there. It was, that was always the priority. And now it's more like Here's when I can come. This is what I can do for you. I totally understand if that doesn't work for you.
1: So you mentioned it is a little bit of a dream. Like, what what has been like the highlight of your
2: pro career, on the road career, for you? Uh, I, I, you know, I've been so fortunate with some amazing experiences. Going to the Olympics was was really really cool in Japan. Hopefully, I'll go back again next year um president's cup with kh lee a couple of years ago that was like my first big team event uh, oh, i've done fun. a writer cup that's that's still on my still on my goals list um but president's cup was such a cool experience um you know being there when a you know a player's won the masters is always like for a coach would probably be number one is going to the masters with a player i've done that i think five times now um but but the best thing and and will not ever be beaten would be caddying for brendan when he won
1: yeah
2: it was the first it was the first time that i caddied that was um, hawaii on tour no he won the safeway open in safeway, 2017 safeway. yeah yeah just an incredible incredible experience just to be that close to it um yeah, you what know, were the nerves feel, like? <laughs> feel that energy and the nerves and and all that stuff it was it was really cool to You know, and he's a very good friend too. To see him, to see him win and be that close to it was just so epic. You know, and that like those feelings won't—I will never have those feelings again. Like even even the next year when I caddied for him and he, um, you know, he lost in a playoff. It just—it was great. Like, don't get me wrong. I was like, wow, we're going to do this again. This is nuts. It sounds
1: like you are in the wrong career, man. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Maybe you need to. uh, You need to get into the caddy world. I know. Uh,
2: know.
1: Some of that live money.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that that first time was was so great so great and it's you know it's people they talk about it on tv oh you know it's you know there's a lot of pressure and it's like okay well what does that mean you know i'll I'll never forget like walking after the first nine holes he's like got a one-shot lead he's come back he was like started two or three back he's got a one-shot lead after nine holes we're walking over the bridge to 10 T and I'm like, Bee! I'm like, this is so much fun. I'm having the best time. He's like, glad you're having. Yeah. Time. <laughs> <So> <laughs>
3: yeah. Went, right yeah. Know your audience,
2: man. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's too and funny. He, and he, yeah. And he's like, just wait. He's like, this is going to be the longest nine holes of your life. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, just, just wait. And sure enough, it's like, he's got that one shot lead. And all you want to do is win. Just like, just want to just hold on to this win. And like, I got to the 10th 10th green and looked at the leaderboard. I'm like, oh my God. That felt like an hour and a half that hole. <laughs> oh my <laughs> like gosh. In every hole in the back nine felt like an hour and a half. That has to really
1: crazy. that has to really so. inform you, like going through the experience, like coaching these players, like understanding what they're going through. And then going back to like nothing matters except because you now know that the level of pressure that they're going to feel. They're gonna kinda care what their swing looks like on video in that moment. They just want to know Mm -hmm. the ball's gonna go down the fairway and gonna go far.
2: Exactly right. Can they predict the future?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think as a (laughs) you know, one of the things that I've wondered because like as I as I evolve as a coach, like I keep like leveling up and I kind of understand what it takes and what it takes and what it takes. And I think one of the things that I'm looking forward to is like when I've reached like that pinnacle of seeing A top top level player perform like you did with brendan like i think that like you have reached that pinnacle of like of being able to see that and i think that's what's invaluable about someone having a coach like you is they like not everyone's seen it you know and Mm -hmm. and you being able to communicate that like even just i I think that's a really really cool thing that i look forward to
2: and the, the cool thing for me too and obviously the first time i had 81, right so i was very spoiled you know, but then I think it was the third time I caddied for him, you know, he had a two shot lead with two to go. And then Cam Smith birdied the last hole to get into a playoff and then birdied the the first playoff hole to beat him. Now, I wouldn't say Brendan did much different, you know, from, from winning to not winning, you know, and then the year after that, he had a three shot lead with nine holes to go. And Kevin Nas started hooping everything and, and beat him. And it's like, like, I don't think I did anything differently. I don't feel like Brendan did anything differently. But, like, you just get a little bit lucky on a shot that you don't quite hit right. You maybe make that 25-footer that, that lipped out. You know, The margins just,
1: have got to be so just, small.
2: But the, the what I'm always saying to my players is, like, you just run in your mental process as good as you can. And then you just go and find your shot. Right? That's all you can do. You don't know when that bounce is gonna go for you. You don't know when that forty foot is gonna go in. You, you don't know when you get your favorite number and you hit a wedge to a foot.
1: Yeah.
2: Right? Like those or the are the light in the fairway. The line
1: might be a little bit of a down slope with wind off exactly. the left to a left pin. It's like it's just a bad it's kind of a little bit of a bad
2: break. Exactly. Exactly. And those those are the margins, right? And that's why it's so incredible what Tiger Woods did. Yeah. Right? Like he was just We were just, just talking that about that better. last
1: podcast. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's just that much better than everybody. I
1: guess that just speaks to you. you just have to at the end of the day, you just have to be as process oriented as you can, whatever, whatever that means to. I mean, that's a generic thing to say, but it really is true because you can't you can't control the outcome. You know, you can't control what Kevin, Now like you just said, like maybe he starts making it you're not going to force birdies like that's the case then why don't you just go birdie 72 holes and then you'll win every event yeah. it's not that easy
2: yeah that's right That's <laughs> yeah, not that easy it's not that easy so, Gosh, so yeah. yeah that's great that's i have been very fortunate
1: so you mentioned that you have a bunch of coaches that come watch you um I've, I've recently had more and more coaches um come and watch me and i always think like reflect like what what is it that I should be communicating to them besides like them just watching me? Cause I don't know all the time, like how much they're getting out of just watching me make decisions. So when coaches come and watch you, like what, what advice are you hoping that they leave with? That's going to make them better.
2: I always say like, like, I have a rule when, when coaches come and watch me at the end of the day, I want to know what they thought I did really well. And I want to know what I, think I can improve what they think I can improve on maybe they've seen another coach do it better and maybe they think they do it better like I want to learn what they're seeing that's that's basically what I what I tell them at lunchtime I'll always say to them and maybe this is a little arrogant but I'm like did you notice that every player got better by the end of the lesson than they were at the beginning that's your that's your only goal as a coach in my opinion like now, obviously, some people, maybe it's the off season and they've decided they really want to move to a fade instead of a draw, and it's not quite as good. Maybe there's some different things. Maybe you're injured and you've got to rework your pivot point so you take some pressure off your back, whatever, like maybe those are different and you're not hitting it better. But like for the most part, like every player is gonna leave that lesson better than they were at the beginning. And hopefully, more importantly, they have such a good understanding as to how to practice and how to improve, and what to look for in terms of the ball flight. Yeah, that they can continue to improve without me. Like that's that's what I want coaches to come and see.
3: That's
1: funny that you say that. The first time I went and watched Cameron McCormick coach, this was back 2011. I watched an entire day, and everybody that left left hitting it so good. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, when everybody leaves my lessons, they never leave hitting it good. <laughs> I mean, if they do, it's like, it was luck. I mean, I, maybe I I was obsessed with style, making it look as good as possible and paying little to no attention to ground contact, face contact, Mm -hmm. predictability, yardage, any, anything like that. So, you know, I always tell people like it really, this really isn't that hard. You know, it, I think we, as coaches make it way more complicated than it needs to be, you know, identify the problem and what is a logical thing that would likely improve that if you can do that then people are going to leave better and they're going to shoot lower and that's going to lead to them you know continuing to
2: evolve exactly right you're exactly right and like i said like i mean this this is very simplified but someone hooks it too much they slice it too much or the contact's bad
1: i'm going to you you as a
2: coach need right (laughs) you as a coach need to have four or five fixes for each one of those problems yeah. Right? Because some, sometimes sometimes the players are going to be like, well, I'm just not quite getting it. And I'm like, OK, well, here's, here's a different solution to the same problem. You know, I had this job up in New York for the last couple of years and working with more amateurs, some, you know, older businessmen, some great players, too. But, you know, I I'll never forget the first month there. I'm like, oh, my God, like maybe I'm not that good at coaching. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, they can't and, do it in three swings not doing it in three swings like this i'm like hey just do this and they're like you're like this and i'm like no not like that at all <laughs>
1: is that what i look like <laughs> doing <Yeah>. this
2: <laughs> so oh my like, god made me it made me a much better coach because 100 i
1: 100
2: i'm having that. to work much harder like much harder in order to get the person to do what i want them to do whether it's whether they're older and they're just physically more limited, whether they're just not coordinated at all, because maybe they just never play because they're in the city the whole time. Like there's a new, you know, numerous amount of reasons, but like, it really got me. I'm like, Oh my God, I got to like change my processes here a little bit because I've clearly been lazy for the last 15 years. Cause I've been working with great players.
1: I would think that that, you know, obviously the, you know, the diagnosis is, the same right you're able to diagnose it really fast you would you would have to learn like you said five or six different ways to communicate the same point with with a better player you just don't need those like five or six different things for example moving low point forward with someone who hits it fat like how many drills can you come up with that are going to solve that where you can just tell a really really good player like hey just focus on you know hitting the ground a little bit later they'll lag it more they'll shift you don't have to tell them anything they'll just do it
0: nice Yeah. Exactly. That that would make you a much better
1: coach. That's how I feel when I'm working with like young, young developmental juniors, right? I'm having to make I'm having to almost never explain a form piece, but give them some type of external task that changes the movement without them almost even knowing.
2: And that's and and you just said it, right? Like that's great coaching. You know, if there's if there's ten dominoes that need to fall. Yeah. you are hoping to push one that fixes that pushes down 7 yeah. right you're not pushing each domino down at once yeah. that's that's terrible coaching
1: that's Choose what good coaches that, do
0: yeah right that's what you those pick people one that, that pushes come watch down you. 7
1: yeah exactly. so so speaking on that i want to go back to junior golf a little bit um, mm-hmm. so cuz we ha- we have a lot of parents that are listening and i think you have a really valuable Um, opinion not and you also have a son who's playing competitive golf yeah Uh, i have a competitive player jim has a competitive player so when it comes to like educating parents like what would you say are like really important pillars that parents should be focusing on with junior golf and also like when they're deciding to like pick a coach so advice just generally in junior golf and then like how do they pick a coach like what should they be looking at someone who has a track record
2: So, yeah, open-ended. Yeah, a little bit like I alluded to earlier is like, does that coach have a track record of developing the player from where your junior currently is up to where the junior's goals are? Now, I've turned down a lot of juniors over the last four years or so only because I don't think I'm a good coach for them, right? Yes, I've got players from 12 years old to number one in the world, you know, yes, I've worked with, you know, great players who've won on tour. But, like, I'm not going to have time for little Johnny who's 10 years old and shooting 90. Like, little Johnny is not going to be a priority for me. Yeah. Like, so so try and pick, pick a coach who has a track record but is invested into your kid who, who's, like you're saying, who's looking at the leaderboards on the weekend, which I always do. Right. You know, like, yeah. like oh my god like so and so didn't play very well i'm texting them right away like you want to have a coach that's invested if i don't feel like i can be invested i'm i don't take a player off um so try and find a coach that you think is going to be invested has a track record of developing a player from where your player is up to great. where your player wants to go and then when you go as a parent like the best parents for me i either don't see them at all, right they shut the hell up during the lesson if they do come to the lesson and they're not like hey come on you got to do this you got to do that they they are there to support and encourage the junior now what does that mean you're spending a lot of money to come and see Chris Chris has given you the goals this Chris has told you how to practice as a parent like you I think you're well within your right to to ask your kid did you do what Chris asked you to do? Can you show me the practice that he gave to you? Can you, can you, did you take a video? Can I see that? I think a parent's well within their rights to say that if you're going to spend 300 bucks on a lesson, you're well within your rights to make sure that that kid is doing what you want them to do. It's just homework, just like it would be at school. Yeah. Now, what that doesn't mean is, going to the range with your kid and being like, no, not like that. Chris said like this, this is what you've got to do differently. That's going to be a disaster for them. They're going to hate you. They're going to hate playing golf. Like try and make it fun and support and encourage as much as you can. And that's, those are the best parents. And those are the kids that love the game. And those are the kids that keep going on to college and play professional and stay in the game. That's what we want.
1: So with your son, are you, are you pretty hands off are you with his swing and just kind of letting him develop or Are you also coaching him but then you can kind of turn on I'm just gonna be dad today and we're just gonna go have fun
2: yeah for the most part our relationship and and his my coaching of him has been I would say very organic right like i I have I have one goal for my son's golf and that's for him to love playing golf and love his time with his dad that is it um so, like today, I got to spend a few hours with him. It's Sunday afternoon. Like he hasn't played. I, I forced a three-week break on him. Like he desperately wanted to keep playing, and I'm like, no. I think it's really good for you to put the clubs away. So, like today, like I'm just checking his fundamentals, making sure he can like check his alignment on his on his own. Check his ball position, grip. Can he can he do these things on his own? Do I have I skilled him so he can. Do these things on his own next time that he takes a little break, right? And I'm making sure he's not doing anything nuts. Yeah. But for the most part, like if you asked him what we did today, like he wouldn't give you a very good answer. Probably <laughs> that's okay, <laughs> right? And and that's not how I teach. I'm my teaching is extremely direct. It's very I would say dictatorial, right? You have to do it my way, um, you know. And it's very I'm very very structured with my coaching too. And with him, it's not. Yeah. It's with him. It's I want it to be fun for him. I I want it to be very organic. Like he's going to have all these skills, and he's going to have no idea where they came from. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like that's what I want. Because it's not, and
1: it's not. Yeah, bl- out. You know, our structured blocks of time. Right. It's like fifteen minutes here, no. or like four hours just playing, and you give him like little nuggets that you didn't even necessarily mean to do.
2: Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And I I was thinking the other day. I'm like, God, you know, I think he would get much better if I like really structured it, like I do with all my other players, but like, I don't want to do that as a dad. Like I don't like that. Wouldn't be fun for him. So he's coming to this lesson with his dad. It's No fun. I've given him a bunch of homework to do. And, and like, then he's not really going to want to either come to the lesson or hang out with me because it's like homework for him. Yeah. So, so I want it to be fun. And I, I want it, it again, I keep using organic, but like that's, no, that's I think how you're I want it right. to be. It is organic. Yeah. And, and for the most part, like is he the best 14 year old in the country? No, he's not even close, but like he's getting better and he absolutely loves the game. And, and like that just, that makes me so great. And you, you and I have chatted before, but like, I don't want my son to be a professional golfer. Like I think it's a horrendous life. <laughs> like if it's, if it's his dream, like if it's genuinely it's his dream, like I'll do everything in my power to help him achieve his dream. But like what I would love is for him to go to a really academic school on the East Coast, play college golf, hang out with his buddies, like maybe give it yeah. a go and, and get a really good education and get a really great job and love playing golf. Because for the most part, like if you asked, you really surveyed the top players whether they loved golf. I bet you 70% would say that they hate the game. Like a vast number, very vast number. Like they just do it because they're so incredible at it. But they don't love the game. And I, like, that's not what I want for my son.
1: Why do you think that that evolution to that mindset happened for a majority of them?
2: I mean, because like where did it go wrong? Because one bad swing and potentially you're you're not only missing the car cut, but like you're potentially losing your card.
1: Yeah,
2: like it's, it's just it's, a lot like of stress.
1: You, no guaranteed
2: like contract. Mentally, yeah. I mean, like there's so nothing is guaranteed, and this is kind of where Lib's going. I was going right? to say, is like this the, a
1: live? Are we pl- are we plugging live because it gets rid of that, right?
2: They're moving towards these guaranteed contracts, whether you get injured or whether you're not playing that great. Like you're a professional athlete at that point and you're making professional money. That that would be a very different thing. Yeah. But let's face it, there's maybe hundred and fifty men players in the world who are making a very good living and know that they will continue to make a good living. Yeah. Everybody else is just stressed and scrambling. Yeah. Right? Like hoping that maybe they could and these are incredible players. Yeah. like Yeah. First team All-Americans. But I see, I like, for oh 30 my God, years. I, first sure.
1: team All-Americans for 30 years, right? 30 years of yeah. these studs. And that's how you got yeah. to go beat week in, week out. That's a daunting task.
2: And that, that is a daunting task. So I think as a parent, like, r- like really take a step out and be like, what, what do I want for my kid? Yeah. Right? Because what you, what you should want is for them to get a really great education. What you should want is for your kid to love the game. What you should want is for your kid to develop some life skills that are going to move them forward into the world as a good, honest, respectful, hardworking person who's going to have a successful career and relationship with a husband or wife, or a successful relationship with their kids. Like, those are the things you should be wanting for your kid. Right. Don't be thrusting professional golf on them just because you think it would be really cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We were ta- when it we were talking like, a couple of weeks ago, we I had said it's it's like a dream for a lot of people that turns into a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. it's not necessarily a, a nightmare, but it's just not it can be just not kind of what you an, you anticipated it being.
2: Yeah. Now, yeah. a lot. I, mean, I think if parents, if they really took a step back and you'd be like, OK, like. Your kid's gonna be a really good player. He's gonna have an amazing junior career. He's gonna to go to a really cool Division one golf school like and get a great education like like why, like how amazing is that
1: that's a it is amazing it is amazing, it's amazing. for some reason a lot of enough. parents it's you know it it's especially you know when you are putting a lot of time and a lot of money and investing in it. I think, it's, I think it is natural to a degree to think, okay, what is this going to lead to? It's almost like an investment. Like, yeah. what is this going to lead to? But your advice of just, like, don't forget that the point was that this all started because you, you, the dad, probably loved the sport. And you ultimately do just want them to love the sport. Just like, I mean, my life. My life is incredible because I love golf. Right? I don't play yeah. professionally, but I have an incredibly good life that I would not have without golf. I mean, that was really the whole point of this podcast is to highlight guys and, and girls that love this sport that has benefited their life, like you and me. And yes. I think parents hearing that, like you have no idea where this is going to lead. And if it does lead to professional golf, that's really, really cool. You know, like really that cool. would be, it could be a really, really cool thing. Um, but that's yeah. okay. It's okay if it if it doesn't happen. It's not a waste. Like they're, they're, you have no idea where it's going to go from here. So that's well said.
2: You're exa- Yeah, you're yeah, you're exactly right. And and I mean how many times it happens all the time here in Southern California, but especially with the girls, right? Like the dads are getting off of work, taking their kid to the range, spending three hours in the floodlights, like working on this kid's swing. And they get to college, this girl gets to college, and dad's not there anymore, and they're like, Thank God, I hate golf. Yeah. Especially, and yeah, especially they, the girls, yeah, and they quit, yeah, and it's like it's like, okay, you just spent tens of thousands of dollars traveling around the country or the world, your daughter to play golf lessons. It's like if the goal was to get in a good college, great job, mission accomplished, but like now she hates you, and she hates playing
3: golf <laughs> no. I. <Like,
2: I'm> <laughs> I'm not willing yeah. to go down that road. I've seen that. I've seen, seen I know, that but no, many, the, many it many many Like
1: no one intends for that to be the thing. It's just it's a slow bleed, you know? <laughs> to where it just yeah. eventually becomes that. And so for anyone listening, like just if you even have an inkling that that like maybe that's you, just like, you know, self-assess and just go, you know, is this really what I want? Like what do I really want for my junior? You know that was part of my next question. It's like, what do we really want for these kids? And I mean, I I think we covered it. Um, yeah. With the with the players that are going to, they are they've decided. I am going to make the jump. I do want to try to play professional golf. Like, what what do you tell those guys? Like the besides just, hey, just go play well.
2: You've got to have a good facility. In Southern California, we don't have them at all. I know in Texas, it's a lot more. It's a lot easier to get access in Texas and Florida. Yeah, um, Southern California is a terrible place to play mini tour golf from. Just unless unless you're at a country club and you're paying for the country club, and you can afford that. So you got you got to have a good place to practice. Nowadays, I don't see how you can be a great player without a launch monitor, and I hate to say that, right? But just because it it just. Tells you once again, it's like it's the elite, it's getting more and more elitist, elitist yeah. right? Now, now can you get by with like hitting shots to different targets on the range and laser in it? Yes, you would absolutely can. Like, you can do that, and there's going to be great players who come out of that. But like, to have a quad or a track man and know exactly how far you're hitting it and practice launching it in a different window, spinning it in different windows, shaping shots, getting different numbers, like. Like everybody's doing that now. And if you're not like, you're going to get left behind. Yeah. Like I hate, I hate, to I hate to say that. Um, it just, I would just say it's a fact.
1: So uh, let me I'm, pause you on that. Just a side note. Yeah. Do you, do you think that at the highest level, you need to be able to work the ball both ways?
2: Yes, for sure. Including off the team. Now, no, no. Like again, we're talking about what level you need to be at, right? Like, there's plenty of guys on the PGA Tour now, and I see it more and more each year that are very one-dimensional, right? And and I don't want to put anybody in a uh, in a box here, but I would say most people are moving to a fade, right? With the way the ball is, with the way the driver is most people are moving to a fade, I would say. There's still a lot of draw players, don't get me wrong. Like, but like they're just wearing out that cut. Yeah. And they're getting really, really good at the cut and making sure it never goes left and they're really, really good at that. You can definitely do that. But like you get behind a tree on the first hole and you need to hit a draw. Like you've got to, know <laughs> you how to do that. that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So like, I love my players being able to work it both ways. For the most part, that tells me their swing's closer to neutral yeah. as well, which is which is handy. I like my players to be able to, you know, hit four shots with most cl- most cl- most clubs above the wedge. Like, I want them to have a stock. I want them to be able to have a setup draw, a setup fade, and a flighted shot. And I want them to know exactly how far those numbers go. You know, and then you've, you've got e- an easy way of changing yardages, taking three or four yards off you've got an easy way of changing spin rates, adding spin or taking it off. You've got easier ways to get to tighter pins and and like I like my players to be able to do that. Now, off the tee, however, like just wear out one side.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can tell because you've you've mentioned the hitting it both ways a few times, so yeah. I w- I was curious on that because there's, you know, there's debate on all of that stuff. I'm in the same boat as you. I'd like to see as much creativity and like being able to do whatever you want with the golf ball. I can't imagine there's many like best players in the world. that can't hit any shot
2: on command, like whenever
1: they want for no, the most of
2: part. Course. Of course. Like, but you know, John Rahm's unbelievable. And he basically yeah. is just hitting a cut. Yeah. 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 And I love right. watching DJ, the- same thing, yeah. right? Like that's kind of where, you know, Brooks, I would say same thing. Like those guys, especially at those speeds, right? Like they're moving more to cut. Yeah.
1: We could keep talking forever. You've yeah, been very, yeah. very generous with your time. I did want to ask you because I noticed on your Instagram you you just launched something in Korea. I just wanted a quick you pl- plug that because I and I also selfishly wanted to know a little bit about a little bit about what you got going on.
2: Yeah, it's very exciting time. Um, I went and did a speech for Sportsbox in April, um, which was really cool and interesting. It's sort of a it's a full day presentation. And I was just it sounds so weird. But like I was kind of surprised like how well known I was there. And when I was there, I I went and worked with a bunch of academies and there was a coach there. And you know, I, I'm working with these academy players and they're terrible players. Like amazing <laughs> golf swings, right? Amazing golf swings, terrible players. And I said to this guy, I was like, Man, I I if I if I came here, I, I think I could kill it. Like, because I got the technical aspect, that's easy. The technical, everyone can do the technical aspect, but like the performance aspect, the mental aspect, how to train properly, how to measure your practice, like no one's doing that there. And he goes, You're right. And I said, I said, Well, why don't we partner on something? And he's like, Well, what do you mean? And I said, Well, I said, You can hire me and I can just be a consultant, right? And you can just send me swings and I'll tell you what to do. I was like, I can come in and do a Chris Mason Golf Academy. Or I can start a new franchise and you can be the first franchise here and, and, and we'll just start it off. And he's like, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. So I went back in October and we, we started World Golf Performance. Uh, we've got two teams in Korea that are doing World Golf Performance. And, you know, it's a lot of all the stuff that I've been accumulating over 15 years, right? Like those players in Korea, they, I mean, they're practicing 10, 12 hours a day on the range. Right, but like they can't go and shoot under par, yeah. and it's like, well, that's ridiculous, right? Like you're clearly spinning your wheels and wasting your time. So, here's how I want you to structure your practice. Here's are the technical things I want you to work on. Like I do a bunch of measured practice with them. So, I don't want to give you all the secrets here, but like <laughs> every every week they get um, a full swing goal, a short game goal, a putting goal, and a mental goal, and they have to they have to measure that practice that they're doing. And then we have a leaderboard, you know, to see who's who's doing the best to each particular discipline throughout the week. So it's competitive, yeah, it it's measured, like it's, you know, the kids are, are motivated by it. And now all of a sudden, instead of them standing there and working on their swing for 10 hours, not getting any better, like, now it's more fun. So they're more engaged mentally and... You know, they're getting much better. So um, it's been a really great experience for me. I'm actually uh, getting up at four o'clock tomorrow morning and driving out to the desert because they're they're here for winter camp for January and February in uh, Palm Springs. So um, yeah, and then, yeah, and then I'll go back in April. So, you know, the goal obviously would be to, you know, start a lot of world golf performances around Korea and around the world. And I, I don't see why why it can't happen. It's difficult for me to do it in San Diego just because the kids are getting off, you know, you've got an hour and a half of school and Yeah. Sorry, an hour and a half to practice. It's like it's not quite the same situation. But yeah, it's 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 an interesting project and really enjoying sort of branching out more into the into the worldwide golf.
1: That's amazing. It's amazing the things <laughs> that have come out of the career. That's awesome. Well man, thanks so much for the time. I'm a huge fan. I really appreciate you doing this. And uh how can uh, people follow
2: you uh yeah on uh, my website chrismasongolf.com that's mason with a y and on instagram at chrismasongolf um and then worldgolfperformance.com
1: yeah thanks so much man and i uh, hope hope the yeah. hope the the beginning of the season is good for you good weather and uh, i'll definitely be following catch up with you soon
2: thanks so much for having me on i'm, right, I'm a huge fan of you you keep rocking and I'll doing, keep trying. doing what you're doing
0: Andrew Lewis, welcome back. It's volume two of the Angle of Attack. How's it going? It's going good. How are you guys? Oh, we're doing great. We're doing great. So uh, everything is good. Just just talked to Chris Mason and really enjoyed your chat with him. Uh, So as we kind of teased last time in our, uh, the last time we met in sort of a reflections episode, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: we talked about. Kind of this next season and sort of previewing this next season and what we wanted to do is take a very close look at tangible ways that junior golfers can improve their scores over time kind of looking at cohorts of golfers and kind of in the based on roughly on their scoring average and what are generally like the lowest hanging fruit at each stage of the way so i think as a starting point like first of all, like thinking about like an 80 ish golfer who's maybe competing in tournaments and wanting to get better. Uh, maybe it's a high school golfer who's trying to make the varsity team, uh, or somebody who's relatively young in their, in their journey. Generally what you're probably seeing is much different than perhaps like an elite golfer who's got very finite things. And we'll cover the whole gamut over this series, but really wanted to start there. And I think think of an AE golfer trying to get to 78 and just wanted to get your reflection, uh, your observations, uh, some of the lowest hanging fruit in that area. And then I can help uh, support that was maybe some of the stats that I've been seeing on my side.
1: Yeah. I'd say, you know, when I see a kid that I think I look at it two different ways, there's a player who generally shoots about 80, which we we will cover. And then there's the, The kid that generally breaks 80 but those days that he's not doing well like what's likely leading to him having a hard time breaking 80 and i'd say the in the two cases it's pretty much the same answer and i'd say number one is just eliminating big numbers Um, when you see fairly skilled players that have a hard time breaking 80 they're likely not making no birdies and eight bogeys to shoot 80 most of the time even players that are shooting around 80 are probably making a birdie or two around on a par five or lucking into one on a par three and a par four, but they're making two or three doubles or a triple and a double, uh, which is generally happening from a bad tee shot or generally happening from a a second shot. Uh, It's it's probably a ball striking issue. So I'd say first and foremost, like finding a way just to one, recognize like when you're about to hit a bad shot like on a very, very tight hole. Like if you're trying to hit some like big, high towering draw, like maybe don't hit the big, high towering draw, especially if you're not hitting your driver that all that great that day. It's almost like predicting the future. The second one I would say is um, that that I see is just kids that miss too many greens chipping. Um, Let's say that they're not having the big numbers because of driving, but, you know, three or four times around, they have basic to maybe somewhat difficult of chip shots where they just miss the green and then they don't get that second one up and down, well there's your double. Uh, I see that all the time where you where a player will play the hole fairly well, um, but then they leave with a six or a seven because of, of something very, very silly like that. Um, and most of the time when someone is missing the green chipping, it's either they're choosing a shot that is like too hard for the, for the shot that's in front of them, like they're making golf too hard, um, or it's just some type of like simple contacting that probably can be fixed. You know pretty quickly the third one that is very very much a killer for breaking 80 is just three putt avoidance that's not always because of speed control sometimes that's from just missing you know multiple three four or five footers this is probably the skill where when someone is struggling to break 80 and they come to a lesson uh, they'll frequently say like oh my driver's really bad or i'm hitting it really bad or my chipping's bad rarely do people go Hey, I'm, I'm having a hard time breaking 80 because of my three-putt avoidance. Um, so I'd say this is probably the most overlooked area of these three skills. Uh, I don't know if you would have any data that would you know, kind of suggest that that's the case, but that, those are kind of the three majors I see from a skill standpoint.
0: So one of the things that I've been doing on the stats side, uh, you've probably heard me refer to this as tiger strokes. Um, and I don't know how widely this is used, but this is based off of Tiger said that basically had these five kind of non starter mistakes that he tried to avoid not bogeying par fives, avoiding penalties, you know, avoiding double bogeys. And then anytime he was like kind of 150 and in, like making sure that he got up and down and in effectively par, you know, three strokes or less. Uh, yeah. And then in addition to that, like the short game stuff, like the two, what we call two chips. So what we started doing is like tracking this over time, round per round. And this is, I think, the easiest thing to monitor. Even you don't need a stats program necessarily to to think through that, right? Just go through your round and think, like, did that happen two or three times around? Did it happen six times around? And start to tackle those certain problems. Yeah, what I've seen is in sort of this stage, I looked at kind of, Luke's like first maybe year and a half of his, uh, tournament golf journey and looked at all the rounds that were sort of in the, uh, 80 ish range. And you do see an exorbitant amount of penalties, three putts, two chips, you know, these sorts of things and in total, I, I got an average of 6.6 strokes from these specific mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot there you know, as a younger junior golfer, like your skill level isn't going to be probably as high as it will be down the road, but if you can look at what your score is minus these tiger strokes. And that's maybe like what you would have shot if you had avoided all these things. And that probably will go down over time. Like that, you know, six, 6.6 would suggest that it's more like a 73 or 74. If you had a clean round um, and that will improve over time where uh, even the best golfers, like I, I actually had a benchmark, Cause I wasn't sure like these, you can't avoid these things completely. So I yeah. went and actually tracked like uh, Rory's shots over, I think the 20, uh, 2022 season. And he averaged about two and a half of these strokes per round. And there were many rounds where he had zero or one that would, I think would be very good. And obviously like uh, just last week, like he had a double bogey and a triple bogey in back to back holes at Riviera. So, you know, even the best golfers, you know, they, they run into these, these sorts of traps as well. So anyways, it's something just to start tracking and monitoring. I think there's a lot here to unpack. So maybe, maybe next episode, like, let's talk about the the short game aspects, the chipping and the putting, but let's separate that from sort of the course management, the mental aspect, the decision-making, and I guess sort of like the focus and commitment. Cause I, what I tend to see what leads to a lot of these issues. Obviously it shows up in the execution, but uh, a lot of it I think is maybe a lack of commitment or not knowing exactly what shot to hit or making a dumb necessarily not the wisest decision in the moment because you know maybe emotionally you're not you're not mm-hmm. in a place where you're able to make a right decision because like this round is going horribly wrong or like the pressure of the moment is becoming too much or what's potentially at stake and you know we're not expecting, relatively young golfers have all the answers and this is this is part of the journey right part of the part of the process
1: yeah i'd say from that perspective i think the the biggest error is probably you know when someone's six or seven over there becomes this mindset where you're like trying to like make up shots so let's say you're 250 yards out on a par five and it's an island green Okay, let's say it's TPC Sawgrass, but you're 250 out. The way that we think when we're playing is like, well, if I hit the best three wood of my life, I hit on the green, I'm going to make a three. And, you know, maybe that's the positivity of a golfer. But me as a coach, I'm thinking, yeah, that's true. You know, the likelihood of that happening out of 10 times is probably one. So what happens those other nine times? Well, those other nine times you're you would be having to get up and down for bogey. Most likely you're going to make double or triple, and so I think it's it's not looking ever to make up shots, it's trying to come up with what the, the highest percentage shot I can hit in this moment is. And sure, maybe you can pull that shot off, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is the time to be hitting that shot. Maybe in that situation you should be hitting a six iron, then a wedge, and like at worst case, doesn't mean you're not gonna make a six sometimes, but you're probably just gonna make a five and that's fine. So being able to see what the highest percentage shot is in the moment is definitely a skill. Like that takes a lot of like self-reflection and emotional control that a lot of juniors don't have. I see it all the time when playing like kids. I mean, we call it the hero shot. It's a shot that like if I, yeah, I could pull it off. And the mistake that people make is like, oh, look, he pulled it off. But that doesn't mean it was the right shot to hit that moment. Um, And then the other one is probably like recognizing the best misses you know, like when you have a full iron in hand, you know, the likelihood of you hitting the green is not very high. Um, So choosing a shot that brings in like the right side of the the green versus the left side of the green, because, you know, like from the left, there's no chance of me getting up and down. I think being able to think that way is how, frankly, like I cannot practice that much and my skills can be kind of bad, but I can still go shoot a decent round is because I'm just generally making golf much, much easier on myself than a kid who's, you know, more emotional and may, maybe a little bit, you know, thinking their skills are better than they are in the moment. And it's sometimes better to think like, man, I don't really have it today. That makes you more conservative in a way to where you're just, you're almost like planning on missing the green. <laughs> you know, like where the easiest spot to get up and down is from versus like, <laughs> I'm just not gonna make double probably. So uh, the the only other thing is there is a mindset of like an 80 shooter, so let's go to the kid or the player that like has a hard time breaking 80. Like we're very much aware of what our score is with like three or four holes to go, and we start becoming like very protective of this idea. I'm gonna shoot a 79. Like even today, I had a kid. He's like, man, if I would have parred the last hole, would have shot 79. And I'm always like, it's only one shot better, but there's something about a seven instead of an eight that makes us feel a whole lot better. <laughs> um, so I think you know, as generic it is, like this one shot at a time mindset, like is something that has to be learned to where you're not making decisions based on the outcome of shooting an 80. You're really going back to like, this is the best shot I should be hitting in this moment. Um, So, and again, that that takes a lot of emotional intelligence to be able to think that way. But I think that those are the keys to like finding two or three shots around with, with no change necessarily in like how you're playing.
0: That's interesting. And it, it's very related to the next metric uh, that I wanted to mention one, we borrowed this from decade. So shout out to Scott Fawcett, but he has, as part of his stat tracking, um, you enter your scores and your putt, your putt links and all that sort of information, but he has this mental scorecard, which is how many of those, if he had took five strokes on that particular hole, how many of those strokes I'm paraphrasing here, were you a hundred percent committed in terms of you knew what kind of shot you were going to hit you had like sort of a positive mindset in terms of, uh, clear focus, clear direction, clear execution, uh, of those five strokes. And I think he had a goal of say like 95 plus percent. So we started tracking this early on. And I would say for these rounds or Luke was in the, in the 80 ish, uh, it was at 80%. And I think, I think I recall Scott quoting that it was basically a, each sort of lapse on average costs you about a third of a stroke. But if you're having 80 strokes and 20% of them cost you a third of a stroke, that's five strokes right there. So when I mentioned sort of the mental mental lapses sort of leading into these execution errors, like we just talked about six and a half tiger strokes uh, for this typical kind of 80-ish round. And you could attribute over five of those strokes to the mental side. Yeah, I just think like when these rounds aren't going well, they do have a tendency to snowball, and I see that even in the highest levels of of junior golf, and you know, even as they go on this journey, it's something that they have to be able to manage their emotions through the course of the round in terms of patience, positivity, you know, like you said, taking one shot at a time, but just letting past results go. And I also think the other thing that can be troubling is sort of Uh, two things, one, like what your real score is relative to what you think you should be at, (laughs) like what you, the sort of this perceived score based on how well you're hitting it, or maybe the birdie chances that you've had in this round that you've maybe, maybe missed. That's all in the past, right? Like all you can really control is your focus, attention to detail and, Mindset going into this next shot and and what you can do from here into the house, so so this it's a pitfall for sure, and I've seen I've seen that lead to negative outcomes uh, for sure through some some of the junior golf that I've seen.
1: Yeah, I'll never forget. I was at an event. It was a pro event, and I was catting for this guy, and we were playing with this guy who just made a triple, and. We go up to the next tee and he gets up there with his caddy and he just uh, he pulls out his yardage book, looks pinchy. He's like, OK, we got seven behind this flag like he had somehow completely moved on from making the triple to where he didn't even address it. He was so focused on the next shot, uh, he ended up hitting it up there, made birdie. He shot like five under on the next like six holes. And, and, and I always took away, I mean, th- and this, these guys are like playing for their living. Like it is totally their life. Like it's way more of their life than it is for a junior. And, you know, I think that's the benefit of playing with pros or better players, even college players. Like th- th- that is a learned skill of like being able to move on and just focus on like the next shot. I, I do think like to the mental scorecard of what you were talking about, like going into rounds and writing that kind of stuff down like what are my mental keys because people always say like oh it was my middle game that cost me and i think most of the time people are talking about like their emotional mental side which is such a small piece relative to like the decision making side like reminders of like the decision making side of how you want to play today is just as valuable as i mean even your even your strategy you know so Trying to, I think the mental scorecard is very, very important, and coming up with that, just like you came up with the Tiger stats, would be a way for someone from a from a course management perspective to drop below the eighty mark.
0: Yeah, can we get a little golf parent on on this? So, one of the things is, as golf parents, it can be tough to see your kid on the struggle bus, right? It can be very difficult to see your kid making mistakes uh, when you know it's a function of sort of their, their emotional intelligence, as you mentioned. Yeah. One of the things that I, I would suggest, obviously you, you mentioned very early on, you know, don't talk about the round immediately after the round, but I think you have an opportunity in between tournaments. The, all of this is positive. I think I mentioned to you last week, count it all as gain, right? Count it as an opportunity to learn improve and get better for next time. It is okay if your kid chokes under the pressure and blows a tournament, right? Let that happen. Like in some cases, you kind of want that to happen as as part of their journey. It will only make them better in the long run. So good or bad, like you you you, we can learn from these tournament experiences. Uh, So have that have that long run mindset as opposed to focus on the individual mistakes um, and harping on them. I think the one thing that I, one thing that I would, uh, suggest that that we did as part of Luke's journey and like, like Luke is extremely competitive, extremely driven. And, uh, there's times where he got extremely frustrated on the course when things weren't going, going his way. What we did is when he had a push cart, we actually like taped like some tips, like on the inside of the push cart. And we had a conversation with him in terms of like things to recognize what that are happening, you know, within or, you know, when things are maybe spiraling out of control, things that recognize that they, this is not the best version of yourself, right? Yeah. But then also like strategies in terms of like, what can, what can I focus on that can reverse that, that can, that can swap that? Like what are some of these fundamental truths in terms of like, hey, my parents love me or hey, I'm good mm-hmm. at golf you know, or, you know, that you know, I, I'll have to dig it up to get the specific examples, but just having that, cause you can't be there as a parent, like obviously like coaching them up in the moment, like you shouldn't be that, like you need to let them go through it, but you in between tournaments when it's not an emotional place, like, Hey, let's try this before the next tournament, whether it be that example or some, some other strategy, you know, when, you may be a week removed from the tournament and you got a few weeks going to the next one. Like, hey, let's, you know, that didn't go as well as like, what did we learn from that? Like let's try this and see if it works out a little bit better next time. And I would say that that helped. Right. Like he, yeah, like I, I remember him being in a tournament where he didn't, he didn't have that information on him and he was like looking for it on his phone. Cause he had a, he had a printout of it on, on his phone because he needed that information at that point in time. So like I said, these ups or downs, like it's part of the journey it's part of the process. We should be glad that they have these opportunities. And like Nick Dunlap said, like the pressure is a privilege, right? To have a great opportunity to be in contention and battle these emotions. It will only make you stronger down the road, whether or not it turned out to be a positive outcome. in in that particular tournament or not.
1: Yeah. I think the, everything you're talking about just makes me think about reflection and from my perspective, a lot of times the best reflection comes kind of like from leading the player to the the answers, like not necessarily telling them, but ask them a lot of questions um, that hopefully leads them to the right answers that they can remember. Um, I'd say the you're you're totally right that these things are good, but if if they just kind of go by the wayside and you don't have a conversation at some point, which doesn't have to be like after the round. You're right. Giving it a couple, especially if they don't play very well, like give them a couple days or the next day to talk about this stuff it is really, really helpful because you do want to like squeeze out every bit of it uh, that you can from the performance. Um, that does not have to be specific to like situations as much as um, like you talked about, like best performing self stuff. Like, you know, I noticed that you reacted that way. Like, how do you want to react the next time you're in that situation? Like, well, how have you reacted in the past that you kind of liked? What do you feel in your body that's kind of, you know, like a telltale that that's about to happen. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the level of reflection you guys did is totally healthy and things that parents should try to do. Cause you got to remember these, these guys, these girls, they are kids. They're, they, they're not going to be able to process all of this as well as you are, but telling a kid what to do all the time is not all also like going to be totally welcome. So it takes a little bit of, you know, savvy parenting to to probably get the most out of it. Hopefully they have a coach that is helpful at pulling some of that out too if they're talking about um their post performance. Um like a lot of the kids I coach, I have them fill out a if they don't do not doing stats, I have them fill out a tournament reflection sheet where they're filling out their basic stats. Uh, but they're also filling out, you know, some mental some mental things and writing out like the reason they gave themselves that score. So any level of reflection is gonna help.
0: Yeah. I think with that, like um, we'll cover the short game stuff next week. But I, I do recall seeing a, re- a reflection sheet from one of your players recently. I think one of Luke's teammates and all Parker Pittman. Um,
1: That's right. Yeah. That's
0: my sheet. That's my sheet. I use. Yeah. I ne- i never seen it before, so I yeah. I might need to start using that. I can soon. say,
1: yeah. Well, yeah. He, he, Luke doesn't, but you
0: might need to. Yes.
1: <laughs> How did you do it, loving yourself today after you shot your eighty-one? 85.
0: I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, yeah so anyways if somebody wants more information maybe find that example or wants to reach out to you where where would they go
1: yeah i'd say contact me on instagram andrew lewis golf that's probably the quickest way to get a hold of me and uh, yeah i'd be happy to share that stuff for sure
0: awesome well this is uh, a lot of information like we're happy to help uh, andrew lewis golf driven golf analytics and uh yeah we'll continue down this kind of 80 to 78 uh, shooter next time talking about some of the short game stuff that you mentioned earlier yeah for sure that sounds great all right thanks andrew all right see ya the driven golf podcast is produced by joseph k if you like this episode like it subscribe pass it on to a friend you might be interested it really helps us out a lot we'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode until then remember in this great game The journey is the gift. Enjoy the journey.
3: pre Chris Mace, man's an ace cleaner, the new Air Force Ones. Take you in, don't help you win, four balls and four sons. From the UK, making his way to California and Southampton. I can't explain every swing I'm playing, he sees the future, man tells fortunes. Shouts to Chris, nobody can diss, the number one boiler maker. From the UK, he stay, he's steady, printing paper. Lizzie's to Benz, West Coast to West, then stack stacking stacks. Sacks. Dollars or quids, answer this quiz, Mason, be racking racks. Three Chris Mace on this plate, off feeding pure golf instruction. On this team, building Swings, building based on construction. Coaching youth, spitting truth, driven towards form and function. I'm with you, two driven dudes of mad bust discussion. From the UK, who's coming your way? That's Chris Mason. San Diego, please tell me you know. Yet, yeah, Chris Mason. South Korea, man, who did it real? Yet, yeah, Chris Mason. Southampton, who'd this be rapping? Yet, yeah, Chris Mason the drop man's the balls rolls up like charlie hustle where we begin plotting to win he rubik's golds puzzles swinging block feeling stuck chris may so team hyperactive spitting real bomb brand steel draw patterns be stacking man is able with his full stable on multi-platinum run the table fully enabled Twenty four come in at ya dog and he in his crew juice this podcast s on diligent living driven grand legend sign up here lesson from the uk who's coming away? That's Chris Mason San Diego Please tell me you know Yep, Chris Mason, South Korea, man you give it real Chris yep, Mason Southampton, who this be rapping Yep, Chris Mason From the UK, who's going your way That's Chris Mason San Diego Please tell me you know Yep, Chris Mason South Korea, man, you give it real Rap yep, Chris Mason Southampton, who this be rapping Yep, Chris Mason